Hey everyone, welcome to DarkCast Interviews. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. DCI is a long-form interview podcast where we talk to game creators about new and upcoming video games, as well as who they are and what they do behind the scenes. In this episode, I talk to John Ingold of Inkle Studios about Heaven's Vault, their recently released story-driven exploration game that centers around an archaeologist who must decipher the past to find out what they need to do for the future. This episode is a little bit different in that the last half hour is a spoiler section. The normal flow of the podcast still happens in the first 50 minutes. Uh, We talk about who John is and what's happened since I last interviewed him about 80 days. We talk about the game Heaven's Vault, and then we play uh, the end game. Uh, And then after that, you can listen to some spoilery questions about Heaven's Vault uh, if you have already played it or if you're just not concerned with spoilers. For more information about the game, check out the links in the description below on YouTube or in the show notes for this episode on DarkStation.com. There you can also find the original DarkCast as well as other video game reviews, previews, and features. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at DarkStation underscore com, find us on Facebook, check us out on YouTube, and email us at podcast at DarkStation.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. Welcome back to DarkCast Interviews. I'm Jonathan Miley. Joining me today, uh, after a, a long hiatus of five years, is Mr. John Engel of uh, Inkle Studios. And I, I think I said those words a little too similarly. John Engold, <laughs> Inkle Studio. They're, you're not named after each other. No. Uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, so how are you doing, John? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, we're we're going to talk about Heaven's Vault, which is this thing that me and the rest of the team at Ingle have been doing for years and years, but we're finally not doing. <laughs> I'm still kind of adjusting to being someone who's not doing Heaven's Vault as opposed to somebody who is just doing Heaven's Vault. But, uh, yeah, apart from that, I'm okay. Apart from that massive identity crisis, I'm good. Yeah, all right. <laughs> you're, you're, the, uh, you're the developer formerly known as the guy working on Heaven's Vault. Um, (laughs) that that does sound suitably final i like that (laughs) um so we we talked uh several years ago about 80 days uh which is a fantastic little mobile game also available on on steam and Mm -hmm. i'm plugging that just because i i love that game people should go check it out um, I think I did a review on it. It's somewhere. I may put that in the show too. I, I don't know. There'll be there'll be a ton of stuff in the show notes for people to to check out. Um, but uh, yeah. for for people that haven't listened to that episode, a uh, little bit of background on kind of who you are and and what you do at the studio, and and all that. Yeah, sure. Um, so. The studio is called Inkle, and it was co-founded by myself and Joseph Humphrey well, about 10 years ago now. Maybe it was 2011, not quite 10 years. And our idea was we wanted to make 
really good, really accessible, interactive narratives, which in 2011 was kind of a radical and strange thing to do. Like there mm -hmm. were some people doing it, but not that many people were doing it. Um, I think Telltale hadn't even really exploded yet. I think The Walking Dead was uh, even that out. Was, that was 2012. Um, right. Yeah, that was they yeah. had they were around and had been for several years. But they, were uh, but they hadn't like as right. you said exploded. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. I remember doing a talk, I think it was in the first year that we founded about what I thought the future of adventure games would be like and I did this talk um which was just ideas really and someone at the end stuck their hand up and said, "Have you played The Walking Dead because it does a lot of the things you talked about and i said yeah, i have played it and it doesn't do any of the things i talked about <laughs> i'm mostly just feeling grumpy um and it, it definitely did do some of the things i was talking about heaven's vault there's a lot of the things i was talking about but that's kind of coincidence because i'd forgotten that talk completely uh what was the question oh yeah so um yeah we make interactive stories that are super responsive that was the idea was to make interactive stories that didn't cheat that didn't like give you two options but one of them killed you so you just had to do the other one really secretly um and like with a focus on things things like character and dialogue and making sure that the story made sense completely all the way through and that kind of thing all this stuff that that if you were writing a tv show or a book or a film is just it's bread and butter you have to you have to support your characters you have to support your plot no one lets you get away with it if you don't mm -hmm. um i'm trying to bring that mentality a bit into into games we started off doing very text-based stuff our first things were really interactive novels and then we got a bit more gamey because that was kind of interesting uh, and then heavens, uh, then 80 days happened, which was sort of this synthesis of a board game and a novel. And that was pretty fun. And, and then we went a bit mad and we decided we were going to do the same thing, but for full 3d adventure games. So we did that and it took four years. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, that's who we are, who we are now, now that heavens ball shipped, I have no idea. Cause, um, as I said, I, I don't know where we are or what we're doing, but, but that's what we've done so far. Fantastic. Um, so when, when I talked to you last, it was basically you and Joseph and you guys had, um, I guess contracted, uh, Meg giant to write on 80 days, but for the most part, it was just, it was kind of the three of you. And from the looks at your website, Inkle has grown quite a bit since then. How many people do you actually have on the team now? Yeah, we're now we're now five. At the at the peak of Heaven's Vault, we were eight. Um, there was a few people who, after the project finished, sort of moved on and decided to go go on to different things. But um, we're now down to to five. But most of that is art. So at the core of it is is Joe and me, and then we have one other developer, Tom, who started as kind of an enthusiastic twenty three year old or something, and and now is a still quite enthusiastic twenty seven year old. And it's quite scary. <laughs> <laughs> to really see the time in that way uh and then we have our we have our character artist who did all of the frames the hand-drawn illustration frames in heaven's vault of which there are thousands who's annie wyatt and she's brilliant and our senior our lead environment artist who's laura dillaway who's ex-guerrilla ex games um and did all the 3d managed all the 3d world building for heaven's vault that, that's the core team right now okay very cool very cool um, so uh, apologies to people listening if I just sound like I'm gushing uh, this entire interview uh, because I am and you, people, people can get over it. Uh, but <laughs> uh, so so Heaven's Vault is out. 
uh, I guess for anybody that that doesn't know what the game is, uh, what's what's the elevator pitch for for Heaven's Vault? Uh, Heaven's Vault is an archaeological narrative adventure game with an entire hieroglyphic language to decipher in it. Um, the story is massively branching. Every single thing that you do, every choice, every action, everything you find and everything you miss, everything you choose and don't choose will branch the story in subtle or large ways. Uh, every single playthrough is completely unique um, to every player. It's still authored. It still has a coherent narrative to it. Um, there's a history to the world that you're trying to discover. You are an archaeologist. There's 5,000 years worth of history. Different players will find different things. Not everything you discover will be correct or deduce will be correct because that's archaeology. Um, but there is a truth underneath it. So you can play it once and have a, a, a good adventure. You can play it multiple times and really try to drill down and uncover all of the secrets of this world that we've made. Um, but it's at its heart, it's it's an adventure game with no puzzles where you can't get stuck with a language to decipher and tons and tons and tons of narrative in it. Um, and we think it's a rather beautiful, wonderful, fragile thing. I I would agree. And it's it's interesting with this game having just came out. I don't know if you've played uh, Outer Wilds. Uh, I would highly recommend it. Uh, I played these games basically back to back. And it's really weird. I mean, I, I played Heaven's Vault a few months late uh, you know, after release. But these are two... <sighs> big-ish games, I feel like they've gotten a fair amount of like press and people have talked about them, that have no combat. They don't really have any traditional puzzles. Um, and they're really both all just about learning about what has happened to this game's world. Uh, and I find that really interesting for them to both have come out within a few months of each other. And they're, they're radically different in like literally every other regard. Um, but just like weirdly similar in in certain ways. Yeah, we we actually encountered Outer Wilds back in 2014 when it was in the IGF Awards. 80 Days got a narrative award, and Outer Wilds got the the what do they call it? The best game award, the shame, the grand prize of okay. the IGF in its kind of beta demo state. And we we kind of met the team then and. After that, the project kind of disappeared, and I didn't know didn't know anything about it really until it turned up a couple of months after Heaven's Vaulted. <laughs> um, and it's interesting comparing the two because I think they're both games built around the idea of curiosity and exploration. Um, they're very different in tone. Uh, Outer Worlds is quite it's it's folksy. It's quite colourful. It's mm -hmm. um, it's very you know if it's sci-fi, it's uh, sci-fi from the 70s maybe it's um it's that kind of colorful pulpy sci-fi by the guy who wrote the centauri device whose name i can't remember m john harrison hmm. uh, that kind of thing whereas heaven's vault is very much more ursula Le Guin. it's kind of thoughtful it's about people it's about politics but it's still very much driven by that sense of if you want to find something out go and find it out go and explore it come up with your own ideas and see see where that takes you um, and I, kind of the combat-free thing is an interesting theme because I think a lot of people have said, oh, look, here are these two games that managed to sustain 15, 20 hours of play in an interesting, focused way without any combat. 
And I kind of think, yeah, well, actually, when I'm playing a big story based game, the thing that I find the most boring after 15 hours is the combat. Sure. Usually, it's very rare for combat to hold my attention for that long. Even in a game like Uncharted, you know, the gunplay is good, it's strong, but it doesn't hold my attention for 20 hours. It just doesn't. Um, so I kind of feel like the no combat is more because it's more like it gives you enough space to do the things which you actually want to do because we're because we're indie we don't have to sell it on the basis of its combat in the same way that a triple a game really does have to to have that combat based backbone to it but it's it's really interesting to see it is and i i feel like personally i i enjoyed uncharted 4 a lot more than the the previous uncharted games mostly because combat kind of accentuates you know, uh, conflict in that game. It's not what you're doing for really most of the game. You're just kind of walking around, climbing, talking, sneaking a little bit, and then you'll have combat for like 15 minutes, and then it's over, and you don't have it again for like half an hour. Whereas the previous games were, you know, combat for half an hour, and then you get a respite of like five minutes to do something, and then it's back to combat. Mm. Um and I don't know, like, like you said, uh, combat can get really old for me. A, th- a thing that I think about a lot is the, I don't know if a lot is, is accurate now, but after it came out, the, uh, the game Kingdoms of Amalur uh, was the, uh, the big RPG from Studio 38. They were supposed to be making a, an MMO, and then they went bankrupt and all that stuff happened. Uh, but it's it's like a 60-hour single-player campaign, and it has a very God of War-esque combat system. And about 20 hours into it, I was ready to just like stop playing the game and see the rest of the story. But but you can't stop playing the game because fighting enemies is how you get through the story. And it always, I don't know, it always made me think that, you know, God of War is always this, like, uh, 15, 20 hour experience. The new one obviously is, is much longer, but you know, they kind of knew when to stop making you fight and mm-hmm. sure. It's like, it's a quality combat system, but when you do the same thing for 60 hours, you're like, please God, just let it, just let it be over. <laughs> yeah. And but I mean, it's when you're making a game and you're trying to work out what, what's the player going to engage with, you know, what's, what's going to make them think and listen and believe in your world and people don't have a lot of confidence that narrative will will do that for any length of time i mean in some genres okay people are really sold on it but but even in rpgs like there's a lot of narrative but very few rpgs really lean on the narrative they lean on the combat they say whatever else we've got we've got combat we've got xp we've got leveling that's the stuff that we know people will engage with and then we have this story stuff and if people get into it that's great and if they skip through it then we can cope with that Right. And that's kind of built into the design. And to Which, me, as a, as a writer and a designer, I always get kind of frustrated by that because it it limits how it limits how deep the story can go, and it limits how weird the story can get. Like <laughs> you know, if I'm playing a fantasy RPG, I really feel like it should sometimes get very, very strange. But it can't because if it does, it'll lose the players who's skipping through it, not really thinking about it. Um, and you know, Mass Effect is this lovely sci-fi adventure, but it can't go to all the really crazy places that a lot of big sci-fi goes or the kind of, I don't know, vaguely spiritual stuff or whatever you have in, in something like Babylon 5 or in Interstellar. They have these kind of overtones, but they really can't because they don't want to lose anybody. And I always find that 
that just is a little bit i don't know it's almost like it's a little bit neutered it's a little bit weak yeah uh, and it's it's kind of maddening uh, as somebody who you know just plays games and, and talks about them regularly because anytime people talk about you know mass effect nope nobody talks about the combat it's like oh i did this cool thing it's they're talking about Liara or Garrus or Tally or, you know, all these characters and these events that they went through, which is the story. It's the characters. It's it's the writing. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Like the, the combat is generally not the thing that we remember about games unless it's pretty much the only thing that there is in the game. So, I mean, I, I get it. it. It's there to make sure that you've got something – You've got something to do that makes you engage actively with that world. But I think the, the thing to bring it back to Heaven's Vault and kind of talk about that a bit more, maybe. <laughs> like, I think that's the thing that we were really excited with when we came across the idea of this translating an alien language and really getting the player to really do that is that suddenly there is a thing that you can get the player to engage with and to really think about that requires them to explore the world and find things and look around the world and connect bits of the world together in a really active way um because it means that in that bread and butter moment of what is the core gameplay the player is doing something that's narratively meaningful and like narratively constructive in a way that combat is well i guess combat's always narratively meaningful but it's not always very constructive <laughs> <laughs> so that was like a real a real discovery and then a lot of the game actually was a lot of the development of the game was how do we support this best how do we make sure that that we can we can put these translations into a world where they matter, where they're meaningful and, and where what you discover is important and, and has significance. So that you're not just walking through a series of puzzles. I think when people hear a description of Heaven's Vault, they sometimes think about it as though it was, I don't know, maybe the witness or maybe even just a book of crosswords, just a puzzle followed by a puzzle followed by a puzzle followed by a puzzle. And, and it really isn't like that. And it, it can't be like that because if it was, then this business of translating inscriptions wouldn't mean anything in the same way your seventh crossword puzzle doesn't tell you anything else that your sixth or eighth one won't do. Um, so for us striking that balance between this, this repeatable translation mechanic and this, this world with a, with a story that cares about, cares about how the world works and how it fits together. That for us was a, was a really hard thing to, to get the balance on, but that's, I think the most exciting thing for me about Heaven's Vault. Sure. Was was that kind of always the vision for the game to have the uh, the translation, I, I guess, essentially be the, the combat uh, of the game of that's the main mechanic that you're engaging with? Because some of the some of your other games have had different mechanics. You know, there's some strategy stuff to 80 days, depending on how much money you have, what you have in your suitcase. Uh, there is combat in the sorcery games mm. was. Was there ever a desire to put those kind of elements in Heaven's Vault, or what? I guess so. I don't know we, what I'm asking. I, yeah, <laughs> I think I do know. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I'm glad somebody does. We we started with this idea of um, space archaeology. We started with this idea of let's make the player an archaeologist because then you've got something to do, and your your what you're doing is is important and it's narratively meaningful. You're kind. Of, it's kind of a detective game where you're, you're just super late. That was that was what we used to say. <laughs> It was um, just this question of working out, okay, what sort of things can this archaeological player do that will be interesting? And translation was one of the ideas that we had, and it was an interesting one, so we built some prototypes and we started working on those prototypes. But 
I remember really, really early on when the translation prototype was not that great, when we had a kind of version, but it didn't really didn't quite work properly. And we were thinking about what the start of the game would be like, because that's the thing we often think about as a design process question. I remember saying to Joe that I thought, well, maybe it should start with, you know, you can see the nebula and then you focus in on a moon and then you focus in on the character and she's focused in on a small pot in a corner. And on the pot of this corner is this translation and kind of get this sense of telescoping into a translation. And I remember Joe kind of looking at me and shaking his head and saying, John, I really think maybe we should just leave the translations for the first couple of levels. Just don't, don't put them in. Because <laughs> I think he had this real sense of, you know, if we can't pull off the translation mechanic, it's just going to be this, what the heck is this thing sticking out of it? And I think, we, yeah, that was fair. We didn't have that much confidence that it was really going to be the rocks, a rock solid mechanic. Um, so we were thinking of it more as kind of a fun little side thing. But, but then we did a few more experiments. We did a few more prototypes and we hit on this design, pretty much what we have in game now, actually, that sort of balances various different ideas and it was just super compelling. We had this prototype and as soon as we we had that and we could put this prototype, this nasty prototype written in a web browser um, in front of people and they would just go through 30, 40, 50 translations and be interested in enjoying them. And we thought, oh no, okay, right, right. This is this is our centerpiece actually. This is the middle, this is the middle of the game and everything else fits around it. Um, and that was incredible because then that meant we could start taking a lot of things out of the design that had originally been there. So, um, and actually a lot of the process of the game's development from that point was realizing something else we didn't need to have. So we had this idea originally that the ship could be upgraded and that you would be collecting some kind of money by, we had this idea you would collect archeological finds and you would get money for them and then you could use those to upgrade your ship to sail to different bits of the nebula to find more finds. That was gonna be a game loop. And we were never very happy about it because an archeologist shouldn't just dig stuff up in order to sell it. That's not very cool. Um, but also it's really just really gamey and like really kind of, we've all played that game a hundred times. It's, we don't need to play it again. Um, and when we realized we just didn't need that at all, like at all, um, it was kind of wonderful actually. And like, we don't need to upgrade the ship. The ship is the ship. We don't need, we don't need a game element on that. Um, and I think, none of us could really have predicted that by the end of this process we'd end up with a game which is you know 15 20 hours long depending how you play that's got no resources in it at all like i occasionally describe the game as an adventure game but it doesn't have any inventory or puzzles and sometimes i describe it as a role-playing game but it doesn't have any gear or loot or experience points uh, it doesn't have any money at all it doesn't I, and so and yet i feel like I feel like I don't know quite what it is anymore at this point. <laughs> like, um, but a lot of that comes to the fact that this translation mechanic was just so interesting that it, it carried it carried the game for us, which was which was really exciting. Hmm. And we found that, but we yeah, we didn't predict that. Okay. How how does the, the translation mechanic actually work i mean you're you're getting these symbols are they randomly generated or what how did you guys come up with the alphabet it what what's what's all so, going on with the, the translation yeah. system we started with this idea of kind of doing something that was semi-random so that you could replay the game because we were worried about that replayability because it's a branching narrative people want to be able to replay and explore other variants of the story and, and find more secrets. But what we found in our early prototypes was basically that languages are really difficult and people would try to 
understand the meaning of this randomly generated phrase using whatever information that that particular game design was giving them. And if they saw an inference and it was true and they figured it out, if they thought, oh, I've seen that symbol before, I, I think maybe it makes the word into a verb or whatever, they would be really excited about that. And when they saw an inference or a connection between two words, which was actually just part of the randomness, they would be hugely frustrated by that and utterly baffled and completely thrown. Um, and what we eventually realized doing various prototypes with random generation was, was that we had to be absolutely rigorously, ruthlessly logical in the way that our language is built, because that way any connection that the player found would would be true it would work it would be a valid way of solving um a particular puzzle um so the way our language is built now we have these glyphs every glyph has a conceptual meaning we never tell you what they are but we know what they are how, how then, many individual glyphs are there i can't remember but i think it's about 20. it's fairly small actually um but there's just enough that we have like um, a few that you see during the opening section of the game that we kind of develop and then a couple of extra ones that get added on later on as you get through the game so there's a, a little bit more detail gets added as you, as you get further through the story um, and then the glyphs are compounded together to create kind of joined words so a higher concept word is built out of the smaller concepts from the language um, if that makes sense mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and then each glyph itself is designed um, so it somehow represents its concept in some way. Uh, and then we just started to have fun. Once we had that kind of construction, once we had that idea, most of it was quite fun from that point. So what the glyphs are themselves tells you something about the universe, tells you something about the world. The things that they think are core concepts are tell, really tell you something. Like, is the word for God a core concept in your world or is it a high level concept that's built out of other things. Well, okay, what are core concepts? Is knowledge a core concept? Is water or fire or oxygen a core concept? Um, that tells you a huge amount about the culture just right there. And then, uh, you know, how are they compounded together? I remember when we took a, a demo to GDC a, a year ago, year and a half ago, um, we showed it some press and up came this inscription and there was a very long word in one of the inscriptions and the journalist kind of thought for a bit and chose a word to put in and we just said just out of interest why why did you choose that translation for that word because you know there wasn't very many clues to go off and he said well it was a long word so it had to be the most complicated concept of the possible ones on offer and of the ones on offer, that one had been the most complicated concept. So it felt like the longest word to him, which we really loved because that was a way of solving an inscription that we had never thought of yeah. and we hadn't designed for. But again, because the language was logical, it was absolutely correct. Like it was a complicated concept. So it did need lots of glyphs to represent it. So it was the longest word there. Um, and so that, that leaning on logic really, really worked for us. Uh, and then it was just a question of building the language out and trying to add as many different words and synonyms and ideas and phrases to this database that's underneath the game um, so that it could give you lots and lots and lots and lots of things to translate. Which was all great, which was all fine. And then came the other problem, which is the one that I think people playing the game don't even notice until possibly it, when they go back and do their new game plus maybe they start to notice that something's going on but um the game's super non-linear right it branches all the time you can do pretty much any location in the game in any order 
there's one at the beginning and there's one at the end and everything else is pretty much depends on your particular route through it. But one thing we found was that if you found an inscription which you already knew all the words for, it wasn't very interesting solving it because you knew all the words. And if you found an inscription full of words you'd never heard of, it wasn't very interesting because there was nothing you could do. You couldn't really make any guesses with it. And the the window, it's a bit like a combat system. Again, like if you find easy enemies, then there's nothing to do. If you find hard enemies, it's too hard. You need people just at your level all the time for it to be a good challenge. Um, so the other half of the translation system is the the system which takes what the object in the world that you're reading your inscription is like it's a window or a door or a box or a knife. It takes what period of history it's from. It takes what you happen to know in your dictionary right now, and it comes up with the best translation that it could possibly put on that object, which would make narrative sense, but also be gameplay relevant to you right now. And it does that dynamically. And every single translation in the game is done like that. So the whole difficulty curve of the game is procedural the whole way. Um, which nobody notices because we've balanced it really, really, really well. How, uh, <laughs> how, how do you balance something like that? How do you play test something like that besides just like years and years? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, have a, we have a tester which just spits out phrases after phrases after phrases after phrases. And I've played through that tester several hundred times. Um, and it just tries its damnedest to, to kind of balance it in a way that feels good. So it's tracking a lot of different things. Like it's careful about when does it introduce new glyphs that you haven't seen before. It tries to manage that process. It it's careful about when it gives you inscriptions that you can't actually solve because that should happen sometimes, but not too often. Mm -hmm. um, it's careful about how long the words you're going to get are. It's careful to reinforce a few concepts along the way. So if there's a word you've seen a couple of times but you haven't ticked off, it helps you to get that ticked off before moving on to the next one. But all the time it's limited by what's available in the world because if you find a sword it's got to have sword type things written on it so there's a bit of randomness that comes in from that and that play between what the system wants and what the the world the narrative wants that kind of gives this give the game its shape um but that was super fun but the crazy thing that came out of that was we designed the new game plus mode of the game in about five minutes towards the end of the project we were thinking about replayability again and we thought, is there anything you could give, we could give the player for a new game plus? And we thought, well, what if we just get, let you keep your dictionary from the first game into the second game? What would happen if we did that? And we tried it and all the inscriptions in the game leveled themselves up automatically without us doing any extra work. Huh. We didn't need to do anything because they were all procedural anyway. Right. So you start the game with a dictionary of 50, 60 words and walk into Mayari's office and she gives you the first translation of the game, which used to be a tutorial with two words and suddenly is a five word phrase. And all of that just happens. So we I didn't did, Yeah, I, started, I haven't played through it a second time, but I did start a new game and I, I got into the office and I see the, the brooch um, and I'm like, wait a minute. I thought yeah. I already knew this. This is yeah. different. <laughs> yeah. I think a, a lot of people, when they kind of get to that thing that says, do you want to play a new game plus? They're like, well, no, of course I don't. I've translated all these things. And you're like, mate, you have not seen anything yet. So we have players out there on our Discord server who are on their ninth or 10th playthroughs. And they're still finding new story content and they're still solving new translations and they're still finding new words in their dictionaries. And yeah, it's just amazing. It's It's amazing how how far that that one decision to make the translations like dynamically balanced 
has taken us because it basically means we now are a narrative game with a level cap and we can keep increasing that level cap just by adding more dictionaries and phrases to the game mm. <laughs> which we do every now and then in an update nice. um which is really cool one thing i was thinking we probably should do is put a little number on the screen that says your dictionary is now level 12 just because people like that kind of thing <laughs> um but yeah it's it's a it, it just goes back to this sense that i don't really know what the game is because it's such an odd hybrid of things um. now since the um the dictionary and all the, the things that you're finding is or i guess the dictionary is not but the the inscriptions that you're finding are procedurally generated yeah. there is a definitive definition or translation for all of the glyphs in the world but yes. you can you can solve them incorrectly which the game adapts for and yeah. doesn't necessarily let that be true but it lets it work it lets it yeah. um logically yeah. play out between all of your other translations that you're making if yeah. if you're yeah wrong then the protagonist will assume that it's correct and it will change what she thinks about a place or a site or the history of the nebula or yeah it's so if, if you're playing the game again and again and you're just you know making your dictionary broader and broader can you correct fallacies that you've made before or will the way that you translate just kind of reinforce itself based on the way that you've translated things yeah. in the past so one thing that we we added which one thing one thing that the game does that people don't always discover even that it does is there are guardrails on it we will eventually confirm a word as being correct if you've used it multiple times and we will eventually uh, Aaliyah will eventually say, you know what, I think this translation is wrong. If you've got a wrong translation and you've, you've stuck by it for a long time. Um, because what we, while we want your dictionary to be full of words you're not sure of, and we want your, you know, your timeline of the, of the world to be full of questions you don't know the answers to, because that's, that's part of the tone and the feel of the game. Um, we didn't want people just to end up in this massive pile of wrongness. <laughs> from there you know from your first guesses like at the start of the game people find that first translation quite scary because they really are just guessing and they say well i don't know and you go well of course you don't know how could you possibly know it's okay um but we don't want that to be the thing which is sticking in your craw 20 hours later so by then you should have fixed that and so we have systems to kind of help that help that happen but the the general rule is that she'll she'll tell you that a translation is wrong um or confirm it, but only if she's got other things which she's sort of interested in um, to take their place. So she'll confirm a word so long as you've got some other words which are now open and questionable and, and kind of interesting. So you're always just moving on a little bit. Uh, yeah. So it's not quite as brutal as it could have been. <laughs> So is there? So I noticed there was a difference. Um, you know, so so you got a, a robot named Six, um, yeah. and how did you pronounce the main character's name? Alia. Alia. Okay, I I always said Alia in my head. Um, so there, I guess there's a, a difference right there. Um, but uh, sometimes uh, she would just say, "I'm now," or you know, "I'll add this to my dictionary." 
And that always made me feel a lot worse about my translation than when she would say, like, I'm confident in this translation, or when Six would be like, you know what? I think I remember that word. I'm pretty sure it's this. Is there a difference there? Oh, I feel really bad about that. No, there is definitely no difference there. <laughs> they both mean the same thing, which okay. is, yep, there is a little tick on screen, to be fair, so hopefully that gave you the confidence you were missing there. But, well, I was like, uh, you know what? I'm just going to go with it because I, I'm an archaeologist and I can only conclude you know, answers from, from, from what I see, and this is the best thing I have to go on. But I, I always just kind of wondered if that was a, a back-end <laughs> way of being like, you actually got it. That is the 100% correct way to translate this. Or, you know what, you're wrong, but it works, so we're going to go with it. <laughs> because it's, it's a mechanic it rightness and wrongness are not really that important somehow like nobody nobody playing the game gets everything completely totally wrong um because the language is so logical i think that when people are making their guesses and their translations they usually get a bit of it right and they usually get enough of it right to get a sense of what the inscription is supposed to say um so you can basically read it even though you might have a few wrong words in there, which is a lot like reading a foreign language. I don't know if you know any languages. I know a tiny bit of French I learned at high school. And when I try to read French, I can't because I don't know French. Mm -hmm. But I can guess the sense of things a little bit. Sure. And that, I think that's the that's the thing that the Heaven's Vault system really manages to capture is that you, you've got enough ambiguity there not to be fluent in this thing, but you can sort of read it and get meaning from it without using any of the UI or the interface to help you. And I really like that balance. I think that was the thing we found in our in our prototype that I mentioned earlier. And and once we found that kind of balance of of getting it right, but but not necessarily getting it completely right, but just getting it right enough um, that we thought was really exciting. Yeah. Uh, have you found a difference? Uh, I guess for, for, you know, we obviously are both speaking English, um, so I don't know. I, I'm wondering if the, the kind of inherent, uh, nature of a glyph and kind of figuring out the, the gist of a phrase, even if you don't know all the words, if you've noticed, if it works for other languages and cultures. So we have a lot of players from different countries, you know, as you would expect really, right. Um, though most of them are pretty fluent in English since the bulk since the bulk of the game's dialogue is in English and we don't do localization because it's all assembled in such complicated ways. Okay. So we can't really test it on someone who doesn't speak English at all and doesn't have that body of knowledge. Um, we definitely designed the game to with English players in mind in that we, we tried a bunch of versions where the grammar of ancient was quite strange and we found that it was really difficult. It was quite frustrating because you'd finish a phrase and then you still didn't know what it said because you couldn't figure out which order the grammar was supposed to go in uh, or it wasn't entirely obvious. And you ended up with this just sense of, well, I've just bunged the words down at random and I can't read it. Um, and actually messing with grammar didn't give us any benefits. So we didn't do it. But that's obviously coming from an English speaker's perspective, playing an English speaker's version of the game. It's an interesting question that if we were, you know, if the game was sort of a million seller best thing ever in the world and we decided we were going to do this crazy project of localizing it, like what would we do for other languages? Would we would we translate their grammars to match the grammar of the target language? And I think we probably would actually you know, if we were translating into French, I think we would start putting the adjectives behind the nouns and that kind of thing. Um, 
at least a bit at least kind of nod towards that because i think it does make a big difference to the the way the game plays but i think for players right now most of them are in an english sort of mode when they come to do the translation game so they're okay with it when it when they get their answer out the other end okay um, it is a shame that we can't localize it it really is i mean the script is so complicated it barely works in english <laughs> <laughs> um that it's been very very it's been it's a very very complicated system um for the storytelling so localizing it would be quite the task but um yeah so is it is it really just kind of the the budget and the, the undertaking of doing something like that that's stopping you from from being able to translate it it's honestly i think it's the technical expertise um okay. you need someone who you need someone who is fluent in English to understand what the text is, says right now, who's fluent in the target language to understand what the text needs to be, and also is fluent in the programming language that we use to write it, which is called Ink, the script that we that we build out of. And that's not impossible. There are definitely people, individual people in the world who can do all three of those things. Um, but I don't know whether they're brilliant at all three of those things. And our Ink is really quite hard. <laughs> like our, our structure <laughs> is really quite complicated. Um, that just like even ignoring the budget, you need this incredible individual to do this incredible amount of work. Um, and then we can't test it to see if it's any good or because like, I, you know, it's in Arabic, I can't read Arabic. So you know, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to tell if it's a good translation or not. And so altogether that, that means it's possibly not the best thing for us to be doing as a studio of five people. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so it is time for the end game, and uh, this is this is one of my favorite parts of the show. The first question uh, is: Who is your favorite video game character? This can be hero, sidekick, villain, uh, anybody. Just video game character in general, and it doesn't actually have to be your favorite. I guess it can just be the the first one that pops into your head, um, so you don't have to stress over it too much. But yeah. So although it's it's a terrible answer, but the the first one that pops into my head is Chloe from Uncharted Two, which is terrible. I just I think Claudia Back's really fun, and I really like that character. And um, yeah, it's just really rare for a game to actually pull off a really sexy character, and I think they did it just really well. And I guess I played it when I was like in my twenties or something. I don't even know anymore. Anyway, it's that that is my favorite character in all video games. Chloe is is great, and if you it's haven't great. played uh, Uncharted, Chloe Strikes Back, uh, which has a different subtitle but is not as good as Chloe Strikes Back, the <laughs> it's it's great, and it it is my favorite Uncharted thing ever, and I yeah. will go to my my grave saying that unless they make something better but it's just such a great introduction as a character like she turns up in the cutscene and just pushes pushes drake over that's the first thing she does it's just yeah. such a well that's character. so i think that's part of the reason that i love um lost legacies which is the actual name of the the game yeah. um she's just she's so she's such a just a better character than drake and that like makes the game so much better <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay, fantastic. Moving on. If you could replay a game again for the first time, you don't have to worry about it aging poorly or anything like that, but you get to have that first experience with a game over again, what would you like it to be? 
Oh, that's hard. Um, that's hard. I think it's probably Monkey Island 2, actually. Because, like, there's a lot of games that I would play again, but that but adventure games have that thing that you can't play them a second time. You just can't. It doesn't matter how long it's gone by. You remember everything. Right. I had so much fun with Monkey Or maybe Monkey Island 1. I don't know. But I had so much fun with those games when I was a kid. I would love to be able to just pick them up and go again. Yeah, that's probably what I'm going to go with. Okay. Good deal. Okay, if, if you could give a game a second chance, uh, just wiping out the first experience. So this is this would be something that, I don't know if, if you played it at a bad time, or you played it, you thought you would like it, and it just left a bad taste in your mouth, so you never went back to it. Whatever the case can be, if there was something that you w- you could finish for the first time, ignoring the first time you tried it, what would you like to be? Oh, that's really hard. So you're asking for a game that I didn't like, that I think I would like to somehow forgive and then like. More um, or less, yeah. I'm not sure. I think when I don't like something, I so don't like it that I couldn't ever imagine going back and giving it a go. <laughs> I'm just not a very forgiving. Okay. <laughs> not a very forgiving uh, so the the other version of the question then, if you could just forget <laughs> having played a game, if you could just wipe it from your memory or existence, however harsh you need to be, uh, mm. what should that never, be? Never have to deal with that ever again. Yep. Um, Oh, do you know what it is? I think it's Dragon Age Inquisition, actually, because everybody told me I would love that game. Everyone told me that I would really like it, and they told me all these great reasons why I would like it. And then when I actually played it, I didn't get along with it at all. Hmm. So I think I'd be much happier just thinking that it was the game that everyone had described to me rather than the game that I actually played. Um, Because now I just feel like I played it wrong. I just feel like all these people know and got this incredible character-based fantasy saga, which I would love to experience. And what I experienced was not that at all. It was like, yeah, it was not. So I've clearly done it wrong. So I feel bad about that. So I could just wipe that and just stick with the description people gave me. That would be, I would trade that. I would do that trade. See, I I hate it whenever anybody tells me that I will like a game. Not just that it's good, but that like you will love this game. Because then something just like ticks off in my head. It's like, you don't know me. I'm not going to like this just because you, you said I will like it. Um, so I feel like it's it's the way people pitched it to you because I, I love that game. Um, and I wish you, you could love it too. So that that is an excellent choice. You're doing it too. Um, uh, I, no, I'm just saying I wish. I'm not saying you should. I'm just – I. It, I it's I understand. It's just, Now I feel even more that I, no, I did it. No, it's okay. You didn't do it wrong. It's it's other people's fault. They set you up wrong. That's what I'm saying. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm gonna have to give it another go now. Oh man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you play the other ones? I played the one that was in the city. Is that Dragon Age Two? Uh yes, uh, that is two. Yeah, that's in the, the city. and I got. I think that. I always. I I don't think I've ever seen an RPG through to the end but i think that's one of the ones i got the furthest mm. with and i was enjoying it it was all right it was all right yeah i like that one too i like i like that one a lot more than uh seemingly everybody else did because everybody liked origins more right. uh, i think two's biggest problem is actually that it's called two um because <laughs> it, it's not really a sequel to the first game it should have been called like dragon age exodus or dragon age uprising or something along those lines 
uh, because the first one's Origins, the third one's Inquisition. Like, there, there shouldn't be one with a two in the title. It's not the sequel. It's just another game in this universe. And that always bugged me, but that's... I can get over that. Uh, moving on. What is yeah. a good trend in video games that you wish more games would do? And you can't just say, like, nonlinear games or games without combat, because we've kind of already talked about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if it is a trend, but I want more games with people in. Like, I am really tired of games where you're on your own the whole time. Like, I've just played too many of them now. Especially kind of aesthetic, beautiful, pretty games. I want beautiful, pretty games where you're not just a, some person on their own the whole time and i get why they do it but like i just I people i just want people in my games i'm not interested in landscapes anymore i want people <laughs> fantastic so so flipping that on its head what is a bad uh trope in games that you wish would either be lessened so it's not really a trope anymore or just just go away entirely experience points okay experience even though you points. talked about having levels and and <laughs> for your dictionary <laughs> But I was definitely joking, and we're not doing that. <laughs> um, but like, even there, at least it's a point. It's like a re reflection of a specific thing. It's experience points of this generic glumph that will give you whenever you do anything, mm -hmm. and then we turn it into random abilities in the game just to give it some kind of meaning. And it's just like it's just so arbitrary. It doesn't relate to anything. I don't notice what I'm getting it for. I don't ever think, oh, I got a hundred that time. They have no value to me, and they don't make any narrative sense. And they're in everything. Like I really enjoyed Spider-Man on the PlayStation last year, and that kind of had like ten different kinds of experience point. Uh, I just don't want any of them. I just don't want any. Like, give me proper, give me a real progression. Don't give me just like this one that got cooked up in a spreadsheet and never left it. Oh, I hate it. So, so what would real progression be? I don't know. It depends <laughs> exactly on the game specifically. <laughs> Whatever the game is, okay. find a solution that's not that. Mm. Um, that's what I would say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Like right. Shadow of the Colossus, right? Shadow of the Colossus doesn't have experience points but it does have a progression system and that's good okay okay all right uh okay <laughs> so uh second to last question um this is not assuming that anything bad happens uh and that you have to do something else but if you could try any other profession what would you like it to be Oh, now, I mean, there's lots of things I would like to do. Like, I would like to be a writer. I would like to write books. That would be cool. Yeah. Um, I kind of do do that. That kind of is the same profession, just a different take on it. Um, so maybe, like, working in a theater would be fun. I miss playing with actors. Actors are cool. I want to hang out with actors. Or a circus or something like that. I like circus. That's different. Okay. Mm. Something with a bit of performance in it. Would okay. Be good. Excellent. All right, and the uh, the final question: uh, you're, you're walking down the street, and Chloe Fraser shows up. You get to ask her one question: What is it, and what is her response? Uh, I'm British. We don't talk to people on the street. <laughs> the only question that I could possibly ask her is, you know, excuse me, do you know what the time is? And <laughs> I don't think there's any other opening which is allowed. <laughs> Culturally, uh, yeah, I think I find that question culturally insensitive. 
that's a British person. Okay, uh, that's you know that that's fair. I I ask it because, uh, well, it's become that uh, because I don't know. Other people seem to talk to people. I don't talk to people on the street. <laughs> I, that that is not a thing that I am comfortable doing. Um, I I don't like small talk at all. Uh, so okay, so. But if I could ask her one question, yeah. I think the question that I'd be most interested to know about her character is, can she dance? Hmm. That's something I'm interested to know, because she's terribly athletic. Did she learn to dance? Okay. And if so, what kind of dance? Well, you That's... have to answer for her as well in this scenario. So can she dance? And how? what does she know? She did ballet until she was 11 um, and then dropped out, I think. Okay. That was... That's very specific. I love it. Fantastic. All right, well, that, that is it for the end game, and uh, for, I guess, technically this part of the show, we're recording it out of order, and I'm probably going to cut out the parts where I specifically talk about because I'm doing the whole thing about branching narrative right now in this podcast, and that's, that's going to go away. But, John, thank you so much for sitting down with me and chatting about Heaven's Vault and about a whole bunch of other stuff. If you could send us out by letting people know where they could go to find out more information about the game. Yes. Thank you for talking to me. The game is Heaven's Vault. It's available on Steam and on PS4 and other things may follow or may not. We're not quite sure yet. And it's not like anything you've ever played before. So give it a try. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much for, for talking with me today. And best of luck as you guys figure out whatever the hell you're going to do next. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Nice talking to you. As previously mentioned, here is the spoiler section for our episode. So if you have not played Heaven's Vault and are concerned with spoilers, turn away now. So into the spoiler section, my first question, or not question, it's really just a comment. Very clever use of the word vault. I love that. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I remember when we were trying to come up with a title for the game and we had about half the narrative written and I think I already knew what the nebula was and where it had come from. And there were various names floating around that different people on the team liked and didn't like. And then at some point, I came across this phrase, Heaven's Vault, in uh, King Lear. It's in Shakespeare, and as well as some other places, I think. And saw the, the, the way that vault could be thought of. And at that point, I was just lobbying. I, was just, I just spent like two months lobbying everyone in the company that this really was the best name because it would let me do this, essentially this pun, at the end of a game about language, which is really cool. Um, <laughs> But no, I, yeah, I was, once I saw that, I was just unreasonably excited about it. Um, <laughs> well, but what was really nice about it is the, the glyphs for the words Heaven's Vault are on all of our marketing. They're on all of, they're in the logo. They're on the Steam page. They're on every poster we've done, every flyer, every graphic has the glyphs for the words Heaven's Vault. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you understand the glyphs, that pun is right there. It's right there. It's completely visibly there. Um, so we have a lot of people who kind of got halfway through the game who were like, wait, they've spelt vault wrong on their marketing flyer. <laughs> like we have people looking at sort of samples of the language before the game came out who were like, no, they've definitely spelt vault wrong. They can't have spelt vault wrong. I don't get it. And they get to the end of the game and be like, holy crap, they didn't spell vault wrong. 
um in ancient and that was really that was really lovely um yeah so no i was i was utterly thrilled by that especially because i've got this real bugbear right about names in science fiction where the name is the name of a ship right so when i was a kid i used to watch a lot of babylon 5 and i absolutely loved it but i always wondered why it was called babylon 5 and as far as i can tell there is no reason why it's called babylon 5 as opposed to mesopotamia 5 or atlantis 5 or any other name because Mm. the name doesn't it's just a name it doesn't have any great significance to it um you know and there are films called leviathan where leviathan is the name of the ship in the film leviathan and you go well fine okay but it could have been called boris it could have been fuck um so i really love the fact that in heaven's vault the title both has a very definite meaning and it's also the name of a ship um just really just to stick in the eye for that (laughs) so it kind of has different meanings to me what were some of the other uh the names that you guys had come up with and were uh trying to to vie for you know what be the name of the game can i even remember any of them a lot of them were kind of a lot of them were awful we had a huge white of them i think one that stood around for a long time was i think it was called sand and starlight and everyone kind of liked the tone of it and I was a bit like, oh, it sounds like a romance novel. I really it don't think kind of... <laughs> And people were like, no, but it's, you know, it sounds archaeological. And I think it would have been absolutely the wrong, yeah. the wrong title completely. But I, I can't even, because I, I think the point where we agreed on, where we agreed on Heaven's Vault, and people had some valid objections, right? It, it does get confused with Heaven's Gate frequently like we've had reviewers on very big websites refer to the game as heaven's gate which is a bad other thing and um it also gets called heaven's fault a lot rather than heaven's vault so i guess there's something funny in 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 the language but um yeah i mean for me just like you know it it's got a vault in it which is archaeological but it's not the vault that you think um yeah no i i couldn't back off it once i had it (laughs) um nice uh so uh let's see uh the six is not actually six how do you pronounce six's real name or is that something that's procedural and that's different for everybody <laughs> i guess now i'm wondering and i'm afraid no, it, uh, the the name of the the name of the the creature that lives inside six the name of the name of the woman who lives inside six is nk okay okay uh, it's definitely not procedural because it has a meaning in ancient. Oh. So all of the names of all of the characters and all of the moons mean something in spoken ancient in Elbereth Patois. Um, okay. The language that are kind of the ancient robots and the gate speak that you hear little bits of throughout the game. Um, so NK, NK's name has a meaning as well. I quite liked it the, because it, it's roughly speaking, it, her name is Inkle, very roughly. Um, <laughs> It's kind of a homophone with Inkle, yeah. <laughs> like, which is quite a nice thing to sort of shove in there. But yes, yeah. Okay, so uh, can, can you actually finish the game with six still just being six and not NK? Dude, you can finish the game without ever knowing that NK is there. Okay. In the game at all. That's entirely optional. Um, and a lot of people don't discover it at all and then some people discover it and they really hate nk they just find her really rude we get all these emails from it's it's almost entirely from men sadly who say i didn't pay 20 bucks to be insulted by someone in a game because <laughs> she's quite 
view all the time. I think it's funny myself, but um, uh, I I did find it kind of funny where uh, she would make comments about like why am I in a bad mood, and then she'd be like peasant, and I'm like <laughs> that's why. It, like you're rude to me all the time. Why why do you think I'm in a bad mood? Uh, <laughs> I, I just I, I think she's I think she's really sweet actually. I really like her. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but you you can get rid of her again if you really don't like her. Oh, really? Uh, okay, I yeah, and, I did uh, not figure that but out. Again, it, it's another thing that you can find or not find, or, or it depends on which way you go and mm-hmm. and whether the person who can help you with that is feels like helping you with that mm-hmm. um, because of the way the story is so dynamic. But yes, you can get to the end of the game without the Empress. Okay. Um, yeah, it was it was interesting because when when that moment happened and and six changed. Uh, that was actually the the first thing that I thought of earlier when you were talking about kind of the weird places that sci-fi can go, and yeah. like completely changing the the nature and dynamic of you know your only kind of companion that's that's with you throughout the whole game is not something most games would do or let you do. Um, you know, I. When I was first talking to her, it's like, okay, well, six is going to go back to normal in just a second because that's what that's what happens in games. Like you can't shake things up too much. And then, uh, uh, Oroy, is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, I think uh, when she's like, no, no, if she moves, she's stuck like that. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh, she's stuck like that. Okay, well, that's different. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I just like that. Was, I was so excited <laughs> by that idea. Um, as just a, it, it, it just you know, I, I love the sense of once you have a framework in place for building a narrative that's that's really genuinely dynamic, where where it can really change, and where you're not precious about any particular bit of the content, right? Because most games have bits that they just, you have to see them. You just really have to see them. Yeah. And they have optional bits, and then they have the main bits, and you better bloody see the main bits. <laughs> and the whole design of Heaven's Vault is such that, apart from the very, very end scene and the very, very beginning scene, the, the game, the code, doesn't really care if you see or not see anything. It doesn't rely no part of it relies on any other part of it except in really specific ways and there's always another way around that if you need it Mm. so once you have that system set up what's brilliant about that is you can just start adding stuff at random and do whatever you think is interesting and whatever you think is fun essentially so it's very easy for us to throw in kind of a little bit of dialogue here or another idea there or another joke or another conversation with Mayari without breaking the balance anywhere else in the game in the same way that we can throw in another translation and the game will just will slot it in for us because mm. we have that system completely changing your entire companion character was somewhat more difficult because obviously that reaches across the entire game and i think there are places where we've done that really well and places where it's a bit more of a kind of sketchy job but that's okay um but i just i love the ambition of it i love the scope of it i love the fact that you can get away with this kind of thing um it's so fun it's so cool i mean what's the point if we're not doing not doing these outlandish things i really like it sure absolutely so we, we, we had someone who emailed us and was like well it was all right but it's basically the same as that bit in tomb raider 2 when you lose your guns and i was like is it <laughs> <laughs> is it 
really? Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I, I think. I think maybe that... if your guns became sentient and started calling you peasant, it might be the same. But uh, I think I, I don't know. The point maybe was that there are no new ideas under the sun or something. I don't know, but that's <laughs> probably true. But. <clears throat> mm. Um, so I, I know that I missed at least one large moon because when you get to, um, the, the, the site with the, the goddess statue that has the hoppers around it and you yeah. create the, the river to, to get to, uh, heaven's vault, there was one of them I was looking at and NK was like, well, that's pointing to somewhere that, that we haven't been, um, so I know that there's more stuff to miss. What I guess what is the critical path? What what would you have to to see just by nature of like getting to the end? Not have to see because you, you know, made it. Like what what's the minimal amount of pieces that you can put together to to get to the end of the game? Does that make um, sense? Yeah, no it does. Um the short answer is I don't know. Okay. <laughs> because that I we we didn't build it that way. There is no graph. There is no tree. Um, the slightly more detailed answer is there have been people on our community, on our Discord community, who've been kind of sharing their adventures with the game um, quite a lot and, and and sort of exploring and trying things, who have completed the game without ever going to Elbereth, without ever going back to Iox after that very first scene. So you kind of you start there. That's the opening scene you get set your task they never went back they've never been to the 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 hermitage moon where you find the crashed ship oh. so they never find out what happened to janiki rembo which is the thing you're supposed to do at the beginning <laughs> of the game they never did that um at all i i don't really know how they did that but it's true they did manage to get to the end of the game with it without it um you don't really need to do very much if you were to fly around stubbornly collecting ruins in space and not do any of the story sequences that would be a way to unlock a lot of sites without doing any other story content at all um so the only things that you absolutely have to do are the opening scene on iox and the 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 forest moon that you mentioned going through to heaven's vault that's the only way to get to heaven's vault that's essentially the door to the end of the game okay um everything else we kind of balanced the game because we thought about this quite hard and did we want to hide a lot of stuff and make a shorter game or show a lot of stuff and make a longer game and in the end we decided to try and balance the game so that you basically see almost all the locations on every playthrough you'll find that if you play games if you play the game again you'll have very different experiences of each location there are core things that always happen and there's a lot of interpretation and discovery which is different depending on what you know and what the context is. And there's lots of mysteries that will be solved in one order and, and not in the other order and that kind of thing. Um, but I, and I kind of, it's an interesting one because it would have been a, quite an easy tweak to make the game like half the length, but contain only half the moons. But then I think people wouldn't have really had a sense of the scope of the history of the place. I think the ending would have been a bit like, whoa, where's this come from? Without the kind of progression backwards through time. You know, we would have loved to have made 30 moons rather than however many there are, you know, twice as many moons um, and given the replayability that way. But we're eight people. We can't do that. Um, yeah. But, I mean, uh, maybe you could. It'd just be another, like, what, five years before the game came out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, somebody has to pay someone something at yeah. some point. Money yeah. Not, yeah. I know. Yeah. The art that we do. That's the art, right. <laughs> um, 
but uh yeah so it's it's an interesting one i think when people replay the game they the first thing they find is that they've seen a lot more of the locations than they thought they had and then the second thing they find is that they've seen a lot less of the story than they thought they had um which is kind of the the other way around from branching normally or something i don't know uh, like in 80 days it was always really obvious where you hadn't been because there were dots on the map that you hadn't been to mm -hmm. uh, and I think with Heaven's Vault, the fact that uh, we have a lot of branching, but it's not like location-based branching, it's knowledge-based. And that's quite a subtle distinction that I think is hard to really see what that means until you actually play it again and find out that things you're seeing whole conversations you've never seen before or deductions and discoveries you've never seen before, um, but not necessarily finding new locations. Though you might find new things in those locations. Are, so are the artifacts that you find, I mean, obviously some things like the crown, I feel like would would be the same every time, but the things that when you're just walking along the ground and you have something to interact with and you find a compass or you find a, a telescope or whatever the case may be, uh, are those procedurally thrown into the game and are different every time or are those set? Uh, yeah, those, those are procedurally okay. generated every time um basically the game chooses the artifact that would an artifact that would make sense to be found in the location that you're looking for that comes from a site that you want to find out about that would give you the best translation you could possibly be given at this moment based on all the possible artifacts you could find if that <laughs> sense at all. so it, it you know it tries to avoid things like giving you a a book in a fireplace which has clearly been burnt um because then the book should have been burnt it'll give you metal things but uh, yeah, whether it gives you a compass or whether it gives you a chisel, whether it gives you a sword will depend on the narrative constraints and the, the translation constraints, which is a real bugger for bug fixing, because occasionally you'll get people saying things. Well, I found the crooked bronze telescope on the forest moon near the pigsty and the problem happened. And you kind of go, OK, that, you've basically given me zero information there. You've given me less than zero. <laughs> um, but yeah. Oh, nice. Now, as far as when you're working on the, the script of the game and the, the way things play out, most games that have branching narratives like to tell you, hey, you just went down a branch. Mm. This doesn't do that. The, the way that I played the game, it feels like that's just the way the story went. That's just what happened. Yeah. yeah. Is it... Is this it is difficult a... not to, I guess, point out that you went down a, this a is, branch this of the is, story? This is a real problem for us. This is a genuine problem for us because a lot of players play it and they go, yeah, I just did the thing and then the story happened and I don't get why I was making all these choices. And, you know, it's a big thing to say to someone, try playing it again for them to go, oh, wow. You mean I didn't? Oh, oh, I could have just, oh. Um, because all of our branching is implicit. It's things like, well, okay, you, you mentioned the crown. You found the crown, but you might not find the crown. You sure. could just walk past the crown and the game will cope with that. And there's bound to be artifacts and discoveries in the world that you did just walk past. And of course, you don't know that you missed right. them because you missed them. Well, I, right? I know I missed the book from the library because the floor collapsed on right. me. So yeah, exactly. I know there's that just because yeah, it was and... staring at me. But yeah, I'm sure and, there's and... a thousand other things. Exactly, exactly. And But it... 
you don't want to kind of walk around telling people all the things that they've missed because then they might think oh my game isn't good enough you might my game isn't proper and your game is fine your game was your game and it's a good story and hopefully it's punchy and pacey and interesting and all that stuff um it's just that next time it might be different but we can't really tell you that you've branched because the the games that do that have a map they have a graph somewhere that the designer drew down and said well you could do this or you could do this and we, we don't have one of those every time you press a button you are telling the game something you're making some kind of choice which has an unpredictable number of impacts that might be enormous or might be tiny you know um to give an example i was playing i was testing recently and i landed on a there's a there's a garden moon and you walk up to the top of the garden moon and from a window you can see down to your ship and if you walk over to the window she'll look at the ship and she'll just say to six you know quite casually oh there's my ship i remember finding it you know on elbreth in this place and that triggered a conversation between Aaliyah and Six about how they had found the night, how she had found the Nightingale, how she had learned to start sailing on it, which then triggered a conversation about her child with Oroi, which then triggered this idea that she should go and talk to Oroi about something to do with the ship, which then triggered this plot thread about something else. And then it was off um, because I walked over to a window and that conversation might have happened from any number of other triggers about the Nightingale. But then again, it might not have happened at all. And that's just how it is. That's just how the whole game is. The game is doing this all the time for 15 hours straight. And, you know, it basically it basically works. Um, and that's such a weird idea. That's such an outlandish idea in games because we are used to saying, like, what is what is the content of this game and can, how do I tick it all off? And and it doesn't really work like that, which is a problem because we don't know how to tell people this. We don't know how to say to people, um, yeah, what you're doing matters. No, it really, it really matters on quite a fundamental structural level. Um, we just have, we just have to rely on word of mouth. Really, we have to rely on people talking to each other and saying, "Wait, you did, you did what? Oh, but the huh?" Um, which, when they do, I think they're quite startled by it, and that's really pleasing. But um, it's just kind of trying to foster that discussion has been actually quite challenging for us because I think the game. In a lot of ways, the game goes out of a lot of the standard conventions, and that's one of them. Is yeah, we could. I mean, we could put a butterfly in the corner like they do in Life is Strange, but we would just be having it up there the whole time. So I don't know what the point. People would be like, "Why is there this butterfly on the screen?" Um, and I, I don't, I don't have a solution for it. I genuinely don't have a solution for it. We kind of thought that the timeline might do that a bit, you know, when it pops up and says, "Oh, you annoyed at my Ari," or. Or, you know, you, you you chose to land on Elbreth. That's what it's supposed to say. This is the thing that you did in your timeline. Mm -hmm. um, but short of actually showing you other people's timelines, I don't know what we could do, really. That would actually be really cool. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's what we did in 80 Days, right? We had the multiplayer right. on just literally to say, no, really, you could have gone there and somebody else did. Mm -hmm. um, uh, precisely to get that kind of idea across. You know what? We were genuinely hoping, actually, that people would have heard of 80 Days and just go, these people do branching narrative. I bet it's branching. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that is clearly straight up hubris. And <laughs> we should be, should be punished for that, clearly. Well, that's why I'm here. So uh, you at least got one guy. <laughs> that was actually I, I got uh, I'm pretty sure I reviewed I should probably find, I, I think I vaguely remember I so I know that I got a copy of 80 Days and I don't remember if it was for our interview or if it was for review but I was at an airport and my flight got delayed like seven hours and so I literally just played 80 Days like 
five times in a row. Um, and by the last one, I think I made it around the world successfully in like 27 days. And for and it was a day or two before the game actually launched. And I was like, for, for a few hours... I am the number one 80 days player on <laughs> on iOS on the on Game Center, in the and I can I can bask in that. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, I don't know I don't know where I was going with any of that uh, besides uh, <laughs> boasting about myself. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so going back real quick to to ships with names. What is the significance of the nightingale? Oh, that's an interesting question. What What do you mean? Well, you you said you it always bugged you that Babylon Five was just called Babylon Five when oh, it could have oh, been Mesopotamian Five. Oh, what nice! Is... You poised me by my own petard. I, I have uh, yes. Yeah, you have. So uh, the significance of the nightingale is that it and it's very very esoteric and minor, but that all ships in the nebula are named after birds and they always have been named after birds, which tells you something about the heaven's vault. Okay. And connects to something else in the game, which is so spoilery that I don't actually want to say it out loud. Um, but you've seen the end of the game, so you know a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. That's, that's my answer. All ships in the nebula are named after birds. Okay. Well, we were not going to have any birds in the nebula that was like one of our world building rules that there were just no birds so that the presence of the nightingale would be this interesting oddity that was kind of hard to explain um which we thought was kind of cool but then we were just doing an audio pass right at the end and uh i think it was me i think it was me i put some owls into our garden room and they just sounded so great and uh, the guy had been doing tom who'd been doing most of the sound design which is like, oh, can I put birds in the forest now, please? Because it's impossible to make a forest sound like a forest without birds. And he's right, actually. If you don't have birdsong in a forest, it doesn't sound like a forest. It just sounds like a windy place. Um, so we had to put birds in just for the audio design. Well, that does it for the spoiler section and for this interview as a whole about Heaven's Vaults. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned some stuff about the game, had a great time. I know I did. Uh, I, I can't recommend the game enough. Go check out Heaven's Vault. Other than that, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a good one. <laughs>